As a long-time foreign correspondent, I've worked in lots of places, but nowhere as important to the world as China. I'm Jane Perlez, former Beijing bureau chief for The New York Times. Join me on my new podcast, Face Off, U.S. versus China, where I'll take you behind the scenes in the tumultuous U.S.-China relationship. Find Face Off wherever you get your podcasts. Today's podcast, we are talking about renal basics, basically taking care of your patient who is in some kind of renal impairment. Before we get into that, I want to encourage you if you are enjoying these podcasts, and I've been getting emails and other notifications that you guys like it. So if you can go to iTunes, and rate and review. That would be amazing. That is how the podcast shows up in ranking so that other students can find it. And since we are all in the business of helping each other, let's do that. Okay, thanks. So let's get going on some background of the kidney. Just a little review. This will probably all sound very familiar from your A&P class or maybe a uh, pathophysiology course. So the functions of the kidney, basically, in a nutshell, they're going to eliminate toxins and waste. You knew that. They help maintain blood pressure. This is that whole um, aldosterone, ADH, um, the renin and 2 pathway. I won't bore you with going through that in detail. They also stimulate red blood cell production. Remember that the kidneys, they're going to sense a drop in hemoglobin by some fancy receptor. Um, Sense those drops in hemoglobin and hematocrit and stimulate the release of a hormone called erythropoietin. Um, You can give erythropoietin exogenously. You can give it via an injection. And patients who are anemic, who are in chronic renal failure, are going to be anemic. And um, I see this pretty frequently. They'll get an erythropoietin injection every week. And it can cause bone pain, just so you know. It stimulates the bone marrow, and that's very painful. Uh, Let's see. The kidney also acts activates vitamin D, which is very important for all kinds of things, and it regulates acid base and electrolyte balance. So let's go back a little bit to that blood pressure thing, stimulating, or not stimulating rather, but maintaining blood pressure. So if your kidneys are failing or your patients, hopefully yours aren't, but if you have a patient whose kidneys are failing, you might see that they have a chronically high blood pressure Um, This is because the kidneys aren't able to do their job in this regard. I had a patient once, young guy, who in his 20s or early 30s, I think he was in his 20s, he was young, he, poor thing, had kidney problems his whole life, and he was now at the point that he was on dialysis, and before he would get his dialysis, like that day before, half a day before, his blood pressure would be 220 systolic really, really high, very scary. We'd have to put him on a cardine drip. And then, so he's in the ICU. You, uh, cardine drips are typically only done in the ICU. And then he'd get dialysis and his blood pressure would kind of level out. So anyway, also your blood pressure is going to be high because of fluid overload, but we'll get down to all of that. Okay. So how do we take a look at the kidneys? What diagnostics are we going to use? Um, One of the main things is a KUB x-ray, and the other is CT scan. So KUB, you might hear it called that, is kidneys, ureter, bladder. Sometimes you might see a KUB ordered to look at the abdomen because it's all just kind of in the same area, but it's called a KUB. Um, To be more specific, you would order an abdominal x-ray, but just just so you know, it's out there. And then your patient... um, 
will also be getting a CT scan for some things. It's going to show those cross sections of the anatomy. Could use a contrast dye. If your patient is in renal failure, has renal impairment, you want to make sure that the MD is aware of that because contrast dye can cause kidney failure and that's not good either. So just a couple of diagnostics that are used. There could also be ultrasounds done for um, looking at the kidneys as well. Let's go now to doing just a quick review of some of the anatomy of the kidney. You'll hear some of these terms thrown around, especially when you're talking about diuretics. So it's helpful to kind of remember where they are and what they mean. So the first one we'll talk about is the PCT, the proximal convoluted tubule. And this is considered kind of the workforce of the kidney, if you remember that from your AMP. Most of the stuff to not think of a better word, that's absorbed by the kidneys is absorbed here in the PCT. Then we have the loop of Henle. This is the one that you'll probably refer to the most. This one has to do with how loop diuretics work. You'll, you'll hear them actually called loop diuretics because they affect the loop of Henle and you want to know what this does to your patient's electrolyte levels, which you will be watching very closely. Note that any diuretic that works on the loop of Henle is going to be a pretty potent diuretic. So you're going to be watching sodium, potassium levels, things like that. The main loop diuretic that you're going to see is Lasix, also known by its generic name as furosemide. Now the distal tubule, this is where the potassium sparing diuretics are going to work. And yes, there are some diuretics that do not cause that excretion of potassium. So let's see, spironolactone is probably the most common distal tubule potassium sparing diuretic that I see. And then there's the collecting duct. The, uh, if the pores are open, and remember the ADH opens the pores in the collecting duct, then water's going to move from that distal tubule into the concentrated interstitial space. The urine here becomes smaller in volume and gets concentrated as we have this equilibrium going on. So that's just a quick review. I would say the most important thing to know is that the loop of Henle diuretics are potent. They're going to cause potassium levels to drop and also possibly some sodium. And then the distal tubule is where the potassium sparing diuretics work. And you would want to use these for your patients who have problems with hypokalemia. Sometimes you'll see them, if they need to be on a lot of diuretic, you'll see them on a loop diuretic and a distal tubule diuretic just to keep that loop diuretic dose maybe not astonishingly high so that their levels of potassium aren't constantly, you know, in the scary zone. And here's a little, just a little tip. Most uh, diuretics are going to cause the urine to be dilute and patients don't really like taking diuretics in general because it's a pain to go pee all the time. So they might tell you they took their Lasix, but if their urine's amber colored, you might suspect that maybe they didn't. And the other thing with that is when you're giving diuretics, you don't want to give it right before the patient goes to bed because they will be up in the middle of the night to urinate. If they're on, you know, if they have a Foley catheter and they're sedated, vented, whatever, then it doesn't really matter. But if you've got a walkie-talkie or someone who's voiding on their own, you don't want them to be woken in the middle of the night by the urge to urinate because rest is very important. Okay, so a little bit more anatomy review. Let's see. The bladder is going to hold about 1,000 to 1,800 mils, and that need to void is going to occur at around two to 400 mils. If the bladder doesn't empty completely, it's called urinary retention. Uh, this can lead to UTIs. So the way that you would check for urinary retention, let's say your patient hasn't voided in like six hours, eight hours would be the max. You're hoping they're not septic. 
you're hoping that maybe it's just a little retention that you can fix with a quick in and out cath. So you're going to get the bladder scanner. Not every unit will have a bladder scanner because they are really expensive, but find out where the bladder scanner is. You might have to sign over your, uh, your house or something to borrow it from another unit, but take the bladder scanner. It's like a little ultrasound machine. You're going to press it against the bladder. You're going to choose if it's a male or a female and you hit the scan button. You're going to put a little, uh, gel on there as well so that it can read and then you'll see it'll tell you approximately how many mils of urine are in the bladder and if you know if they say it's been eight hours since they voided and there's very little urine in the bladder then you're going to get concerned for some kind of kidney failure going on why aren't they making urine their bladder should have quite a bit of urine in it especially if they've been receiving fluids or drinking um, and then if you scan the bladder and it says oh there's 700 mils in here well that's definite urinary retention some things you can do to help with a male patient sometimes it's really hard for male patients to void in a seated or lying down position with those urinals. So see if you can get them sitting on the edge of the bed at least. Um, if they're a little bit stronger and they can stand at the side of the bed, great. That can often help quite a bit with women. Um, again, going on a bedpan is hard. So if you can get them to the commode, give privacy, run the water, Stuff like that can help, but if it's true retention and they're having issues, then you will want to call and get an order for a catheter, an in and out cath, maybe a Foley cath, maybe, and then we can address the issues of what, why this retention is occurring. So just a little, little tip there about using your bladder scanner. And so let's move on. So we talked about how urinary retention can cause UTIs. So let's talk about UTIs a little bit, urinary tract infections. So obviously the first treatment, I'm using air quotes, for UTI is to prevent it from happening in the first place. The reason we don't cath everybody that walks through the doors is because it carries a huge risk of infection. So you'll learn, if you haven't already, in your skills lab, fundamentals class, whatever your school calls it, how to properly properly insert a urinary catheter. And you will note that it's all about staying sterile. So um, interesting to note that some catheters do have a little antibacterial substance on them. I haven't really seen this, but that sounds super cool. You want to remove catheters as soon as you can. If uh, there's ever another option for the patient, using the urinal, getting out of the bed, using the um, bedpan, you want to do that. Get that catheter out as soon as possible. In surgical patients, it's usually ordered to come out automatically. It'll be a standing order post-op day two. So you'll get that cath out as soon as you can. If you've got a patient who's on a vent, been sedated, been wobbly with their fluid balance and you've been keeping a super critical close eye on their eyes and nose a foley catheter is great for that but let's say they're awake now and they can move and they can help you get that cath out pop a bedpan under there pop a urinal at the bedside take it out as soon as you can the in and out cath also called an ino cath that has less risk of infection do those if you can eh, i'm a little mixed on this only because it's not as easy as people, you know, maybe the doc thinks super easy to cat somebody. I mean, I'm sure they've done it before, but I'm telling you, especially with the ladies, it can be really difficult because anatomy, it's not like the pictures in the book, y'all. It's different. It depends on how, uh, how much adipose tissue is present. If they've had pregnancies, the tone of the pelvic floor, there's just all these things and that urethra, it ain't always where anything is going to be. Just saying. Uh, with men, it's a little easier unless they have prostate issues and then it becomes difficult because that big prostate can get in the way and you might have to use what's called a coup de cath, which is a little stiffer. Um, some men with prostate issues are so difficult to cath, you'll have to have a urologist come up and do that. Uh, let's see. UTIs drastically increase cost of care. If it's a documented hospital acquired UTI, that's bad. 
your unit where you work or the floor where you work is going to be tracking hospital-acquired uh, UTIs, also also called cauti catheter-associated UTIs. So there's, I've never seen a unit that doesn't track this, so just know that it's something that's very carefully watched and, and prevented. So other things besides catheterization that can cause a UTI um, obstruction, so the urine is not flowing out, it backs up and gets into the kidneys, that's bad. That's really bad. Even just it's sitting there in the bladder and all of that, there's going to be higher risk for infection. If you've got a bladder that doesn't contract well, like a hypotonic bladder, maybe with somebody with some neuromuscular injury, that can cause a UTI. Uh, obviously, being a woman carries its own risks because everything's all kind of close together down there. And if you're not super careful with your hygiene, then the bacteria from the stool can get up into the urethra and that urethra is super short, travels right on up in there, bam, UTI. People who are older are more prone to UTIs. People whose immune system is suppressed and um, just poor hygiene in general. So let's see. Dun, 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 dun. Let's talk a little bit about the micturition reflex. Micturition, hard word to say. Um, this is, if you remember from your A&P, it's that reflex that helps you urinate. So as the bladder gets full of urine, it's going to stretch, right? It's going to send that message to the brain to say, hey, I'm full. The brain, however, isn't necessarily going to listen to that every time. Or you'd probably be in the bathroom constantly. So the bladder waits and it fills up some more and then it sends another message to the brain and the brain's probably still going to say hold off don't get your panties in a bunch so the bladder waits a little bit more and then as the bladder continues to fill it's going to send another message to the brain and at some point the brain's going to listen and it's going to activate the pns parasympathetic nervous system which causes the bladder to contract and blocks the SNS, which relaxes that sphincter, and there you go, urinate. So what if this whole system doesn't work how it should? Because in some people, it just doesn't. So you could have neurogenic bladder. Uh, again, somebody with neurogenic bladder, you can have either a hyperreflexive bladder or a hyporeflexive bladder. And a hyperreflexive bladder, this is gonna occur often with spinal cord injury and the patient will have no control of their bladder contraction. It just happens. It's not coordinated uh, with the relaxation of the sphincter, so there's a disconnect there. So you also have the bladder not emptying fully, and you get some urinary retention, and you could also get reflux of urine back up into the kidney, which is bad news. With a hypo-reflexive bladder, there's damage to the nerves, and the messages don't travel the way they should. So the bladder fills up and doesn't empty, and you're going to have large bladder volumes, and again, that reflux back up to the kidney. So if you did a bladder scan on someone with hyporeflexive bladder, you're going to see a lot in there. So how much urine do you need per hour? This is a very basic kidney function concept. You will use this knowledge not only for every exam you take on the renal system, but daily in your practice as a nurse. So the short answer for an adult is 30 mils an hour. That's a blanket statement. To be more accurate, and if you are watching critically ill patients or children, then it's 0.5 mils per kilogram per hour. So one of the things that I like to do at the beginning of my shift when I'm taking on a new patient is super quick calculate what that patient's estimated urine output should be. So if my patient weighs 100 kilograms, I'm going to expect 50 mils an hour from this patient, not 30. Okay, make sense? Okay, let's talk a little bit about incontinence. You're going to see it a lot. And a lot of times it's just due to people being out of it. But um, there are other kinds of incontinence that you'll be working with. So stress incontinence, that's where the muscles are weak. The support structures don't work that well. This could be uh, because your patient's had a lot of 
babies, lots of pregnancies, maybe they're very obese, even jogging can cause the stress on those muscles and weaken them. There's also urge incontinence. This is caused by irritable bladder, can be infection. You know, I mean, you if you're a female, you've definitely had a UTI. So you know what I'm talking about. That urge, that feeling that you have to go, have to go, have to go. And then you go and it's like, Two mils and it hurts like heck. Yeah, good times. So anyway, urge incontinence is one thing. Overflow, that's that hypotonic bladder again. And then there's functional incontinence, which is basically patient can't get to the commode. They're in restraints. They've got a physical limitation. Maybe they had a, a BKA and they're still not really that mobile, something like that weakness, etc. So what are the treatments for incontinence? We can treat it, which is great. We can strengthen the muscles and tighten the sphincters. So that's going to help. Those are those Kegel exercises. There's also implants and surgery that can be done. I would say Kegels start there if your patient has that stress incontinence caused by that weakened muscle. That's where you start. Uh, timed voiding. So this is for your patient who maybe has been incontinent in their uh, bed repeatedly or is having trouble getting out of it because of a physical limitation, do time voiding. Bring that bedpan in. Bring you know the urinal and help them with it every couple hours, maybe more often if you have time. But if you can get the voiding timed, that helps. And that also helps reduce falls. A lot of the falls in the hospital setting are due to people just trying to get out of bed to go to the bathroom. Um, medications can use, be used to treat incontinence, uh, to decrease contractility, uh, increase tone, obviously antibiotics if they have an infection. There's antispasmodics if the patient has a spastic bladder. And then analgesics if you've ever had a UTI, okay, um, and you're in terrible, awful pain, you can get... I cannot pronounce the generic, but pyridium is the over-the-counter name. And you can actually get that now. Over-the-counter, it used to be prescription only. And when they made it over-the-counter, it was like mana from heaven. Because if you ever have a bladder infection, it is, I don't mean to go off on a tangent, but it is absolutely, I want to say maybe one of the worst experiences of your life. It obviously isn't, but when you're in it, you're miserable. Note that pyridium, um, I forget what the brand name is or the generic name, but anyway, it's going to turn the urine bright orange. And ideally, you don't want to take this before you go get a, a UA done. So if you can hold off, get your UA done, take the pyridium afterwards great because it's going to really discolor your urine and they're not going to be able to see um, any of the visual cues that there's an infection okay so let's talk now about renal failure so there's if you recall and maybe maybe you haven't gone over this yet and this is all new to you but there's pre-renal failure intra-renal failure and post-renal failure so let's talk about pre-renal failure first. So when we say something's pre-renal, we we, what we mean is that the problem is occurring before the kidney, not within the kidney or after the kidney. So in pre-renal, the kidney system works fine, but it's going to be excreting a small amount of concentrated urine. So when we say the kidney's working fine, how can it be renal failure? Well, it's remember, it's pre-renal. The problem isn't in the kidney. The problem is somewhere before the kidney. So the biggest one is going to be um, probably low blood flow due to low blood volume. So hypotension, hypovolemia. These are things that can cause pre-renal failure. So if you've got low blood flow going through the the kidneys, then your GFR is going to decrease. Your urinary output is going to decrease. It's going to get more concentrated. You're going to have urine sodium decreased, which will lead to a higher BUN and creatinine. So again, it's usually due to low blood pressure. Maybe it's low cardiac output. It's before the kidney, so pre-renal. 
So if you want to go a little, another step back, what would cause low blood pressure? What would cause low cardiac output? Well, you could be dehydrated. So your volume depleted, maybe you've got heart failure. So your pump isn't working. So your cardiac output is in the toilet. Maybe you have uh, sepsis or you're hemorrhaging. You could also see uh, low blood flow because of atherosclerosis or chronic liver disease. Very interesting. So how is pre-renal failure diagnosed? Basically, you're going to get a medical history. You're going to do a complete physical exam or the MD is going to do all this. And, you know, you'll ascertain, do they have something that could lead to pre-renal failure? Did they have volume depletion? Do they have low cardiac output? The lab studies that you're going to do, you're going to do a chem panel that's going to show a high BUN to creatinine ratio. ratio. So you're BUN to creatinine ratio is going to be greater than 20 to 1. You will have abnormal urine chemistries. And, you know, that would be things like um, all your electrolytes and things like that. And then you're going to treat it. So how are we going to treat pre-renal failure? We're going to make our goal to improve kidney perfusion and blood circulation. So usually this involves treating what caused it in the first place. Do they have an infection? Do they have low volume? Do they have heart failure? Are they in liver failure? So you're gonna give IV fluids to most patients and you might even hear the word or the phrase fluid challenge. That's where you give a fluid bolus to see if it improves their blood pressure and their urine output. So this is usually if they're a little lady and they have a little heart failure, you might give 250 mils, just a little bit. In a healthy young adult, you could give half a liter up to two liters for a fluid challenge. Usually I see a liter bolus given. Um, so just be aware that if your patient has heart failure, you're going to be giving smaller amounts, like 250 mils, maybe 500 mils for your fluid challenge. And so now let's move on. So that's pre-renal, okay? Let's talk about intra-renal. Remember, intra-renal means that the problem is within the kidney, and this is where I am going to be tongue-tied because I cannot say glomerulonephritis without having to slow way down. So I apologize for that. So glomerulonephritis, which I'm probably butchering, is a type of intra-renal failure. It can occur due to um, ABAG complexes after a patient has something like strep throat. Those antibodies get in there and clog up the kidney. Um, it could be due to an autoimmune disease like lupus or diabetes. It's going to basically damage your kidney's ability to remove waste and excess fluids. Also, called glomerular disease, a little easier to say. It can be acute or it can be chronic. If it's uh, occurring on its own, you'll see it referred to as primary glomerulonephritis. If another disease like say lupus is causing it, then it's going to be called secondary glomerulonephritis. So treatment's gonna depend on which type you have. So if you recall the, the glomerulus has these capillary membranes and they act as little filters for the kidney. So when this, filter isn't functioning properly, it leads to all kinds of problems like proteinuria, hematuria, low albumin, lipidemia. So those are kind of some of the things you're going to be seeing along with it. So what are the signs and symptoms of glomerulonephritis? So your first indication that something's wrong would be the symptoms the patient's having, or you're going to get a, U, a UA back and it's going, to, it's going to show some issues. So you might have cola-colored or diluted iced tea-colored urine. Okay, this is due to red blood cells in the urine, also called hematuria. Heme for blood, urea for urine, hematuria. You could have foamy urine due to excess protein in the urine, also called proteinuria. Patient probably have high blood pressure, uh, some fluid retention, Mostly, you might see this in the hands, feet, maybe also the belly and the, and the face. They'll probably be tired because they've got some anemia if their kidneys aren't working, and they will not be urinating as well. The key that you need to know for glomerulonephritis is this. 
cola or tea colored urine plus that foam plus hypertension, glomerulonephritis. Hey, I'm getting kind of good at saying that now. Um, let's see. So what are the causes of glomerulonephritis? Infections. So again, I mentioned the strep infection. It's called when it's caused by strep, it's called post-streptococcal glomerulonephritis. And usually it's from a strep infection in your throat, but it can be from a strep infection on the skin, which is in Pitigo. I did not know that. Interesting. Uh, this is becoming less common because the treatments for strep works pretty well. Another infection that can cause it is bacterial endocarditis. This bacteria can spread through the bloodstream and lodge in your heart and get into the uh, kidneys and affect the glomerulus. And then viral infections, um, things that could trigger glomerulonephritis are uh, HIV, Hep B, Hep C, things like that. Okay, you could also get it from immune disease. I mentioned lupus earlier. This is just a chronic inflammatory disease that affects all parts, well, maybe not all parts of your body, but lots of parts of your body, including the joints, the blood cells, the heart, lungs, the skin, and the kidneys. There's also good pasture syndrome. This is a rare autoimmune lung disorder that can mimic pneumonia. It causes hemorrhage, bleeding into the lungs, and glomerulonephritis. There's IgA nephropathy, which is characterized by recurrent episodes of hematuria and it results from deposits of immunoglobulin A, which is the IgA, in the glomeruli. And people can have this for years with no symptoms and then bam, now they're sick. Um, let's see, there's polyarteritis. Wow, that's another tongue twister. This is a type of vasculitis which is going to affect the small and medium blood vessels. And some of those are, happen to be in the kidneys. And then there's Wegener's granulomatosis, which is another form of vasculitis, which also affects small and medium blood vessels, which can be in the lungs, upper airway, and guess what? The kidneys. So you could also get glomerulonephritis because of just conditions that cause that glomeruli to become scarred. And scarring of the glomeruli can be due to high blood pressure. Uh, let's see, diabetic kidney disease, diabetic nephropathy, also called. This um, can take years to develop, and it can be preventable by controlling the blood sugar very stringently. And then there's focal segmental glomerulosclerosis. Holy cow. Focal segmental glomerulosclerosis. This is a scattered scarring of some of the glomeruli and it can be caused by other diseases or occur for no known reason at least they don't know yet so let's see dun, 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 dun. what are some complications of glomerulonephritis so obviously acute kidney failure so if you have loss of that filtering function waste products will build up and if this occurs really rapidly the patient's going to need emergency dialysis, and we'll talk about that in a little bit. It can also be a complication of it can also be due to chronic kidney failure. This is, you know, the kidneys gradually losing function over a course of time. When your kidney function gets to like 10% or lower, you are at end-stage renal disease, and that is dialysis or a kidney transplant. And then um, another complication of glomerulonephritis is high blood pressure. So the damage to the kidneys and whatnot affects that kidney's ability to do that ADH and renin pathway, you're gonna have blood pressure that goes up. How are we going to treat glomerulonephritis? Well, it's going to depend on if it's acute or chronic. Some acute problems can probably improve on their own without too much terrible intervention. 
Other treatments include controlling high blood pressure, keeping salt intake down, giving a diuretic. You want to be careful though because diuretics can also do a little, they're a little intense for the kidneys sometimes. So if the creatinine's high, you would be very careful with giving something like Lasix. You can give uh, ACE inhibitors, angiotensin receptor blockers, antibiotics to treat an infection if it's caused by an infection. If you've got an autoimmune disease, there are corticosteroids and immunosuppressing drugs for that. Um, they're currently studying, or maybe they have by now, studied fish oil supplements to treat that IgA nephropathy. Good pasture syndrome can be treated with plasmapheresis. That's a whole other ball of wax. You can um, give the patient temporary dialysis if it's acute and they are very sick. And then long-term, the treatments are dialysis and transplant. So that was glomerulonephritis, an intrarenal problem. Here's another one, nephrotic syndrome. So you're going to get a lot of test questions that want you to differentiate between glomerulonephritis and nephrotic syndrome. So this is uh, a disorder caused by damage to those small blood vessels in the kidneys. When, when these are healthy and working well, they keep protein from seeping into the urine and out of the body. When they're damaged, the protein leaks out of the blood and you're going to pee it out. And then if there's no protein in the blood vessel, your osmotic pressure is altered and you can get edema. So the signs and symptoms of nephrotic syndrome, edema, okay, particularly around the eyes and the feet and the ankles. You're gonna have that foamy urine, maybe a loss of appetite, low levels of serum albumin because you're peeing out your proteins. So the key elements that you're going to use to differentiate nephrotic syndrome from glomerulonephritis is it doesn't have that hypertension element. It's mostly going to be that foamy urine and the edema. And you're going to say, oh, they probably have nephrotic syndrome. What are we going to do about that? So let's talk about some of the complications of nephrotic syndrome. One of them is going to be a high cholesterol, high triglyceride level. This occurs because when the body's losing proteins in the urine, the liver is going to try to help and it's going to make some more albumin for that. So what occurs when the liver is making more albumin is that it releases more cholesterol and triglycerides at the same time and those levels will go up. Another complication is poor nutrition. Loss of too much blood protein is, is results in, in a malnutrition leading to weight loss. This is sometimes tricky to spot because there's also edema when this occurs and that causes weight gain. So keep that in mind. High blood pressure, again, damage to the kidney is going to cause waste, waste buildup in the bloodstream and can raise blood pressure and defeat the kidney's ability to help regulate blood pressure. Um, obviously, acute kidney failure can occur. Uh, chronic kidney failure can occur and infection. So it's not really completely understood why, but people who have nephrotic syndrome are at an increased risk for infection, including things like pneumonia. And then the last intrarenal failure that we will talk about is tubular dysfunction. This is where those tubular cells don't work so well. It's caused by damage to those cells and the osmolarity of the urine will then equal the osmolarity of the plasma. So the result when this occurs is oliguria because there's you've lost your concentration gradient basically to pull fluid into the tubule. So your patient's going to have increased BUN and creatinine and probably you're going to look and see why is this happening. So why does tubular dysfunction happening? A lot of times it's because of nephrotoxic medications like gentamicin can also be because of that contrast dye that we talked about. So be careful with CT scans. Ischemia or pyelonephritis, which is backing up of the urine into the kidneys. So 
Let's talk a little bit about CT scan dye real quick. I want you to be really aware of this if your patient has any kind of renal insufficiency. So let's say they go to CT scan and they give them the contrast dye. If they're not on IV fluids, you know, maybe they've been a walkie-talkie type patient, drinking and eating, you want to encourage fluids. Now, you have to be careful in patients with renal failure how much fluid to drink versus how much urine are they putting out. Are they edematous? Are they having signs of fluid overload? So keeping a close eye on that. And then, so here's something that happened to me when I was a student. I had a patient that I was taking care of, an elderly woman. I think she was about 70. This was probably the best day I had as a student because it was so exciting. I mean, poor lady. She got the care that she needed. But um, I never say I want people to be sick, but if they're going to be sick, I want to be there. So I was taking care of this little little lady, and she had gone for a CT scan that morning, and she came back, and she was drinking, but not a ton. Little ladies don't drink a lot of fluids. I don't believe she was on any IV fluids. We were just encouraging PO intake. And later in the day, she tells me that she's, or maybe I went in there to do, I think I was in there to do vital signs. And her O2 sat was like 88, 89, and she didn't have a history of COPD or any respiratory issues. And I listened to her lungs, and they sound a little crackly in the bases, a little fluid there. So... I went, I put, I think I put a little oxygen on her. I hope I did. And I went to get the nurse that I was working with that day and told her using my S bar, what my assessment was and what was going on with the patient. She came in to see the patient and just in that short amount of time of going to get the nurse, coming back, she did a full assessment of the patient's respiratory status. We determined that she was not, she had not urinated in a while. Um, she started to, to decline, and we had to call a rapid response, which was very exciting for a student, and she ended up being transferred to the ICU. So what happened was she got what's called um, a flash pulmonary edema, and flash, I think it's just called that because it happened so fast, but the contrast dye had affected her kidneys, so she wasn't producing urine and fluid was just backing up into her lungs. Very interesting. And yeah, so maybe she was on IV fluids now that I think about it. Anyway, point is it can happen. And that day really made me like critical care. And I think that's why I do it now because it was just so interesting to see that team come together and just all the different elements that went into taking care of a patient who was in a crisis. Anyway, so I think that's basically, let's see, pyelonephritis. I mentioned that a minute ago, sorry. Uh, urines backing up into the kidney. So this is associated with things like cystitis and uh, reflux of the urine. Your signs are going to be flank pain because it hurts. The kidneys don't like that. You might have a fever. There's probably going to be some white blood cells, bacteria in the urine. And this can happen Mostly it's going to happen to people who have like maybe neurogenic bladder, that hypotonic or hypertonic bladder, people who have obstructive things like BPH where that, that prostate gets big, even a kinked Foley catheter can cause it or a Foley catheter that's all gunked up with some sediment and stuff, blood clots. So you want to always check if your patient has a Foley cath and the urine output is not great and it doesn't make sense because they've been fine, check for kinks or clots in your Foley cath. And sometimes they're a little bit positional. If you move it just slightly, it'll start to flow. If you suspect that it is got a clot of some kind, especially if your patient's urine's got a lot of sediment or weird stuff in it. I know that was super technical, weird stuff. You could take three 
saline syringes, okay? Scrub that. There's a little irrigation port and sampling port on the Foley cath, you know, where you draw to get a, uh, a urine culture or urinalysis. So scrub that really good. Keep everything nice and clean. Kink off the catheter below the level of that port and kind of lift it up a little bit so the gravity helps you. You want to take your saline flush, connect it to that port, flush toward the bladder, okay? Do that three times, so a total of 30 mils. Usually 30 mils is enough to clear anything that it was kind of just sitting there blocking the path. You'll, you should pretty immediately after that get that 30 mils out. Make sure you account for that in your I's and O's. And you might see increased urine flow after that. And that just means maybe the catheter was a little bit gunky with something up in there. So keep an eye on that. If the urine output isn't coming out like you expect and it's because of a kinked catheter and that caused a pyelonephritis, that would be awful. And that would be totally on the nursing staff for that. So keep an eye. Um, kidney uh, tumors or kidney stones can also cause this, this backup and this pyelonephritis. Okay, so we've done pre-renal, we've done some intra-renal, and now we're gonna talk about some post-renal. So post-renal failure occurs two problems after the kidney. This is typically due to an anatomical problem in the ureter. Maybe a kidney stone is blocking the flow, or again, that BPH. So interesting how a post-renal problem can cause an intra-renal problem like the pyelonephritis. So for kidney stones, the most common are calcium oxalate or calcium phosphate stones or magnesium stones, also called struvite. Those are called struvite. The stones are super painful to pass. Uh, most will dissolve or pass with the patient just taking extra fluid intake. And um, you can also limit oxalate, sodium, calcium, and purines. So foods high in purines. Nursing school professors love putting this on their exams. I think even the NCLEX loves asking about foods high in purines. So these are organ meats, bacon, oh man, bacon, beef, pork, lamb, game meats, anchovies, sardines, herring, mackerel, scallops, gravy, and beer. So if you can't remember all of those, remember meat, seafood, bacon, gravy, and beer. Okay. So those are foods high in purines that can cause kidney stones to develop. Okay. Whew. We got a lot of the pathos stuff behind us. Now the big question is what are you going to do about it? That is the number one question that you will be asked as a nursing student and that you will ask yourself as a nurse. Patient has X or is showing X or is doing X. What am I going to do about it? And that is really the whole basis of nursing right there. So Regardless of what caused the renal failure, you're going to do a lot of things the same for all of your renal failure patients. And the very first thing that you're going to do is monitor their INO like a hawk. Okay, so you might get report on a patient who has renal failure or um, renal disease. This doesn't mean they're automatically a dialysis patient. You could have patients who are on dialysis that are still making some urine. So these are questions that you wanna find out. Are they completely anuric or not? Um, if you've got a patient and the renal failure is a new thing, it's acute renal failure, and their I's and O's become unbalanced, meaning that their output drops off, that's gonna be a sign that something is wrong. Again, we talked about normal urine output being what? Yes, okay. 30 mils an hour or 0.5 milligrams per kilogram per hour. So keep an eye on those things. You're also going to monitor their lung sounds because if the kidneys aren't working great, the body fluids aren't being exposed, 
expelled as they should be and this fluid can eventually work its way back up into the lungs and your lung sounds are going to be coarse kind of wet the oxygen saturation is going to be down just like in my little old lady example and so if your patients urine outputs down lung sounds are junky as i call it then you're going to probably get iv lasix provided that a their blood pressure can't handle it and b their creatinine's not really high You'll also monitor their electrolytes. So the kidneys filter some really key things. So if your renal function's out of whack, electrolytes are gonna be out of whack. The most important electrolyte that you're going to monitor in your renal failure patient is potassium. This is because it's gonna be high in your renal failure patient. And hyperkalemia can cause cardiac arrhythmias and cardiac arrest. So let's say you're taking care of a renal patient and you start noticing some ectopy. Uh, maybe you're seeing more increased PVCs or runs of VTAC. You're going to want to know what their potassium level is. You might see tall peaked T waves on the EKG as well. So you'll want to get an EKG and a potassium level. And then if it's high, you will get what is called a hyperkalemia cocktail. So this is kind of a standard treatment given to patients with potassium levels that are high. And it, it can get the potassium level down pretty quickly, faster than dialysis would. Um, so basically, these treatments are albuterol. Honestly, I don't really know exactly. I forget how albuterol works, but I just know that it does and it'll be given the main ones that I've seen are insulin plus glucose. So if you remember from your physiology that insulin unlocks the cell so that glucose can enter, well, potassium kind of hitches a ride on glucose to enter the cell. And how I remember this when I was a student, I used to draw a lot of pictures. I'm not an artist by any stretch, but I would draw little pictures to help me remember. And I drew a little picture of a cell and then a little glucose molecule with a little potassium molecule sitting on top of it. And as it's going into the cell, the potassium is saying, thanks for the ride, sugar. I know, it's totally goofy. But that is honestly how I remembered that potassium would enter the cell with glucose. So that's why you give glucose and insulin to someone who has hyperkalemia. Uh, you can also give K-exalate. Now that's going to take a little bit longer. This is a cation exchange resin. Uh, basically, it's got sodium in it. You give it via, they can drink it, and I suspect it tastes awful. Or you can give it via an enema. I think the enema might work a little faster. And what this does is it's a cation exchange. Remember, cations are positively charged ions your sodium's positively charged your potassium is positively charged and to maintain electroneutrality these are going to switch and exchange place so you're, it's going to put in sodium and pull out potassium and then the patient is going to excrete that potassium in their stool so you give kyxalate expect to be doing some cleanup but it is going to help your patient Another one is calcium gluconate. This doesn't necessarily decrease the potassium level, but it will decrease cardiac irritability so that maybe the heart doesn't have as many angry episodes when faced with all that extra potassium. And then sodium bicarb can be given um, when the potassium is up, your pH is going to be up, you give bicarb, and this helps push potassium into the cell. Okay, so those are some of the things that you're going to do when you are dealing with a patient with hyperkalemia that's having some symptoms. And the main symptom would be cardiac dysrhythmias. So you'll have them on the EKG. You'll see elevated peaked T waves. You may see runs of VTAC or bigeminy where it's like PVC, regular beat, PVC, regular beat, PVC, regular beat, um, things like that. Uh, even cardiac arrest. The most important thing that I want you to to know about ectopy or runs of VTAC is, is the patient symptomatic? And when we say that, what we're talking about is, are they perfusing? Do they have a blood pressure? 
are those perfusing beads. So if your patient has, let's say they've got bigeminy where every other bead is a PBC, waltz your body in there, take a blood pressure, but also while the blood pressure is going on the left arm, say go over to the right and check their pulse. And let's say the monitor with the PVCs is reading a rate of 100 and it's counting all the beats. So you think, oh, a heart rate of 100, they should be perfusing. Check the pulse with your fingers and feel it. Sometimes PVCs do not perfuse. So you might actually be counting a pulse of 50. And if their pulse is 50, their blood pressure might not be sustained as well. Depends on the patient. But anyway, you want to make sure they're perfusing and that they still have a good blood pressure with that. Okay, so those are some of the things that you're going to do for your patient in renal failure. A lot of it's monitoring. A lot of it is correcting electrolytes. And um, just a quick word about diuretics. You also want to monitor electrolytes with diuretics because the patients, especially if they're not on a potassium-sparing diuretic, they can lose a lot of potassium. If you've given your patient some Lasix, and suddenly they are just dumping urine, you might want to check and maybe not wait till the next day to get another chem panel. Get another chem panel, you know, kind of midday just to make sure that their potassium doesn't get too low because that can also cause problems. Okay, so I want to talk briefly about dialysis, just very briefly. Oh, but before we do that, let's talk about the diet for renal patients. This is, this also comes up a lot. Um, high calorie diet. You want to, you want to make sure they get adequate calories. This diet is going to be low in protein, potassium, and sodium. Most dietary complaints I get from patients are from patients who are on renal diet. It really does not look that appetizing to be honest. So it's a low protein, potassium, and sodium diet. So no flavor in that. Uh, they'll be on fluid restriction. Probably the second biggest complaint is nobody likes fluid restriction and um, giving diuretics as long as the kidneys can handle it. And then the next treatment would be dialysis. So a couple of terms that you might hear thrown about are uremia and azotemia. And these are sometimes used interchangeably and I just wanted to clarify a little bit. So uremia is a buildup of urea in the urine, like urine waste products. And azotemia is specifically nitrogen buildup in the urine, or I'm sorry, in the blood. So um, azotemia is a characteristic of uremia, but if you wanted to say blanketly uremia and a buildup of toxins and waste products in the blood, go with uremia. So there's a quick little mnemonic to remember if your patient is going to need to go for emergent acute dialysis. And it is A-E-I-O-U. Super simple, right? So the A refers to acidosis. If your patient's in renal failure, and usually these occur kind of with your, your acute onset renal failures, or your patient's in chronic renal failure and has had an acute exacerbation. So they've gotten very sick. Um, acidosis with a pH of less than 7.1. I want to clarify that would be a metabolic acidosis, meaning that the kidneys aren't working. They're not producing the bicarb. They're not doing their job of, of buffering or maintaining acid-base balance. So you're going to have a metabolic acidosis. When the pH gets down to the 7.1 or below area, that's dangerous and you are probably going to be emergently dialyzing this patient. Electrolytes out of whack. Again, we talked about potassium. That's the main one that you're watching. If potassium gets above 6, 6.5 or is going up really fast or your patient's having a lot of problems and you're not able to get it down or keep it down, um, that's another indication for dialysis to happen right away. Intoxications is the I. This is uh, drugs, so that's the salicylates, your methanol, ethylene glycol, lithium, isopropanol, and I've, I've even heard about dialysis used kind of as a, maybe not first line treatment, but maybe a last line treatment for patients who've overdosed or taken too many of their uh, I, I want to say it's like Xarelto, those drugs that there's no antidote for, those blood thinner drugs that there's no antidote for, dialysis would be something that they would do 
the trick with that is that placing that dialysis catheter, they're going to be bleeding a lot. So tricky. And then O is overload, obviously referring to fluid overload. Fluid overload that's so bad that it is impairing their ability to breathe would basically be the reason. And then uremia, that word we just talked about. So this is a buildup of waste products in the blood. How will you know that the patient has uremia? Um, you're going to have a high BUN and some kind of classic signs and symptoms. A, a, a lot of it has to do with neuro, so decreased uh, level of consciousness. That's called uremic encephalopathy. You could have neuropathy, and this is basically neuropathic uremia. Toxins getting in there and affecting those nerve impulses. And with uremia, you can even have spontaneous bleeding. So I don't really know the mechanism of how that works, but it's often, um, maybe they have a, maybe their IV sites are just oozing. Maybe they've got urine in the blood. Maybe they've got a GI bleed or a spontaneous subdural hematoma. Okay, these things can happen with uremia. Also, um, seizures, coma, neurosymptoms. So for dialysis, if your chronic patient who's been going to the dialysis center comes in to the hospital, then they've already got a fistula situation, and that is how the dialysis nurse will access them to, to do dialysis. My favorite is when the dialysis patient comes into the hospital and you ask them, what's your normal dialysis schedule? And they'll tell you, oh, it's Monday, Wednesday, Friday, or it's Tuesday, Thursday, Saturday. And you say, well, when did you last go? And it's like, they've missed a couple. Well, well, why didn't you go to your dialysis? Well, I wasn't feeling well. Well, guess what? You weren't feeling well because you needed to go to dialysis. And then you're here now. So anyway, that happens more than, more than you know. And then let's say that they are acute, right? They've never had dialysis. This is a, a problem that's brand new to them. They're going to get what's called a temporary dialysis catheter. We call them Quentin catheters. I believe Quentin is just a brand name might be also called a trialysis catheter. Trialysis is great because that means there's three ports. So ICU nurses especially love to have as many ports as possible. So two of those ports are used for a dialysis. You're not going to touch those. Uh, one pulls the blood out, one puts the blood back in. But that third one you can use as a central line, which is awesome. Um, so I think I'll do a whole post about dialysis or a whole podcast maybe because there's all kinds of cool things. You know, are you filtrating? Are you just, you know, are you doing all these things? And the, there's different um, types of dialysis like CRT and whatnot. But um, so we'll do that later, maybe in, in a more like advanced med surge type podcast. The last thing I want to mention is just peritoneal dialysis. I've only seen one patient on this, um, but it is really interesting, and it is something that you'll need to know. So this also removes toxins from the blood, and rather than the blood being pulled out of the body, run through that filter, and then placed back in, the patient's peritoneal membrane itself kind of acts as that semi-permeable dialyzing membrane. So what happens is a hypertonic solution is placed. There, there'll be like a... Oh, a little pore inserted into the, the abdomen of this patient. And they do this at home. So they, you get the dialysis solution. So it's hypertonic. So what is that going to do? You put that into the peritoneal cavity. And because it's hypertonic, you remember your, your diffusion, your osmotic gradients and all of that. It's going to pull excess electrolytes and uremic toxins over. Okay. And then that's going to get... The bad stuff out and then it's also because of you know osmosis going to pull fluid over to help equalize the two pressure gradients and gets extra fluid off as well so the patient will typically hook themselves up to their dialysis solution before they go to bed this is typical for your patient at home this is done a lot for patients who are awaiting a kidney transplant and are responsible and can manage their dialysis this way. I think if I had to go on dialysis, this is the way I would do it. I mean, who wants to go to a dialysis center 
and sit there for hours and hours and have a fistula ouch and all of that. So if you could get by with peritoneal, I would totally do it this way. So they hook up the bag of dialysate fluid. I forget how much it is. Is it five mil bag, 10 mil? I don't even know. I can't remember. Um, and they drain this into the peritoneal cavity and then they're going to have like a big full belly, go to bed. And then in the morning, drain it out or does it drain while they're sleeping honestly I don't know but the point is it can be done at home and it's kind of amazing so I think that's enough about renal I don't even know how long this is going oh this is a long one over an hour I hope it helps you I hope you got some of your questions answered and feel a little more confident about taking your exams and taking care of renal failure patients I do want to ask you again please go to iTunes and rate and review this podcast i realize it's super professional you guys should see my recording studio it's my office and my cat is sitting behind me right now i'm actually surprised he hasn't been meowing he's such a good boy um so i realize it's not like you know cereal or something where the production value is amazing but i'm just getting this information out to you okay so please go to itunes rate and review that helps us show up in the in the searches and the rankings so that other students can find us. Let's help each other, y'all. And then if you haven't been to my website, straightanursingstudent.com, go. You will be amazed at how much incredible, free, informative stuff is over there. I also wrote a book called Nursing School Thrive Guide, which is available as paperback or Kindle book or an audiobook for your pleasure, whatever you like best. You can get that at Amazon. Just search for Nursing School Thrive Guide. It'll show up. You'll see it there. And then you can go through and read all the five-star reviews. Okay, if I'm not convincing you enough, read all the five-star reviews and then try not to buy it, I dare you. And then if you want to follow on social media, there's a Facebook page, like an official Straight A Nursing Student Facebook page. And that's at www.com facebook.com slash straight a nursing student there's also a facebook group page at well just search the groups for straight a nursing student it'll come up i have to approve you and make sure you're not a robot or a weird spammer or a hacker or something but as long as you've got you know you look like a normal legit person then you'll get approved and then on twitter look for at straight a nurse and on instagram straight a nurse so Follow on social media, go to the website, review the podcast on iTunes. And if you don't have the book yet, get it. You'll love it. Okay. Thanks, everybody. I hope that this was super helpful for you. And we'll be back again very soon. Bye-bye. This podcast is a production of StraightAnursingStudent.com, copyright Mo Media. Have you ever wished that you had a direct line to your pediatrician to ask all the questions that constantly crop up while parenting? We sure have. That's why we launched the Bites of Health podcast. Every morning, we'll answer a commonly asked pediatric question in five minutes or less. You can tune in while you're making your second cup of coffee or from the school drop-off line. So be sure to tune in to Bites of Health, streaming now.